Indeed, Lord, we declare with our mouths that you reign. And as we quieten our hearts and our minds in these few moments, and we picture you seated on your throne, surrounded by the heavenly hosts, we are so thankful that we have this privilege of being able to participate in the marvel and the spectacle of your glory. And so we declare once again that our God reigns. And we pray now, dear Lord, that as we continue to quieten our hearts and our thoughts and as we we listen to the scriptures that we might be able to affirm your reign in so many different ways. We pray for your blessing upon the rest of our time together as we just marvel in your presence as we pray this through the name of your son Jesus. Amen. Hey, is everyone comfortable? Good morning to the maskless people of God. <laughs> but if you are comfortable um, and you need to still continue to wear a mask, please feel free to do that. Um, there's no prejudice here. <laughs> but uh, I think, you know, one of the things that um, the COVID experience has taught us, you know, is that we still continue to wear masks, don't we? You know? Um, as human beings, we know how to do that very, very well. Um, but yeah, I'm not to, here to talk about mosques and its benefits or not. Um, I'm here as having the, the privilege and opportunity of um, sharing a devotional thought, um, sharing a message um, based upon God's Word. Now, we are not in, a, in, in any particular series at the moment, you know, as you might be aware. You know, our church um, often... Um, competes with Netflix um, in terms of series. You know, we have our own series here that Craig normally introduces and has already shared in anticipation um, of what we are going to be doing in the future. But, you know, um, people are um, a bit relaxed at the moment. Um, it's holiday time for those who are at school. And as a result, you know, there are people who are away, including Craig and Cindy. Um, and so when Craig asked me to share... Um, I was also reflecting on what he had shared with us a while back, you know, that, that as a church, we, we do sense that we are in a changing season. Um, a changing season that doesn't just talk about the weather um, and the fact that in Cape Town, you know, we are now into autumn and very soon we'll be going into winter and that will impact um, the way in which we gather, but a recognition that this also is a changing season when it comes to maybe the effects of the pandemic and the way in which we approach it and the way in which we handle it. But we all know that the pandemic has affected us in so many different ways, including the way in which we believe God has called us to serve Him and to worship Him as a church. Um, and so in about two weeks' time, um, as Craig has shared, um, the elders will, will be gathering to, to reflect on that. You know, what is this, this changing season 
mean for us as a church? Given the way in which we have committed ourselves to a particular missional strategy as to how we believe we want to impact our community and our society um, and position ourselves to be able to um, serve the Lord who has called us to His great commission. And it, was, it is with that in mind that I want, to, I want to share a message in which aspects of this I have already had the opportunity of sharing on other occasions, but you know, to maybe kind of set the, um, the scene for what we are going to be engaging in and what we're going to be discussing and looking at, you know, what is our, what, what do we understand to be our calling as a church and how are we going to be positioning ourselves? And so in that regard, I want to share with you um, from a passage of Scripture, 1 Peter chapter 2, well-known passage of Scripture, 1 Peter chapter 2, from verse 4 to verse 12, that I believe, amongst many other passages in Scripture, helps us to understand what the essential nature is of the church, what the essential characteristics are of the church. And I want to suggest this morning that as we read this passage and as we contemplate it and as I share a few thoughts on this passage, that we will see some of these, these main characteristics of the church. In fact, there are three of them that I want, to, I want to highlight from this passage. The church as community, the church in its identity, the church in its responsibility. The church as community, the church as identity, and the church in its responsibility. And I'm sure that this might come as a, a reminder to each one of us. You know, because everybody has got different ideas as to what church is, and what church should be, and what church should become. And in fact, many of those ideas, as we have picked them up over the years, as we've listened to sermons, as we've maybe read the scriptures, as we have heard people contemplate on this, many of those things would probably be true. Besides the fact that there are some of those ideas that are not necessarily biblically based ideas. And so amongst all those ideas that we might have, many of them I would say is valid. And in fact, uh, uh, quite a lot of the things I might be sharing with you today, with us today, you know, you might say, but, but you know, we, we, we actually do know that. But, but I think for me, sometimes we have to bring all of them together and bring it down to what I would want to suggest is the core, the essentials as to what it means to be the church. So Peter writes and he says, in 1 Peter chapter 2, from verse 4 to verse 12, and I read from the New English Translation. So as you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but chosen and precious in God's sight, you yourselves, as living stones, are built up as a spiritual house into a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You know, I couldn't say it better than that. And there's a sense in which I can say, almost tempted to say, Amen, there's it, there you've got it, now let's go and do it. <laughs> but anyway, the passage goes on, and because I've got the time to do it, <laughs> Verse 6, for it says in Scripture, look, I lay in Zion a stone, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. 
So you who believe see his value. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the bull has rejected has become the cornerstone and a stumbling stone and a rock to trip over. There's a lot of metaphors here, you know, that's been mixed as far as, you know, what the significance is of Jesus as to why Jesus came into the world, to whom God sent Jesus initially, and what the, the response was by God's chosen people to Jesus. But the value that it has to all of us who are indeed the children of God, they stumble, in other words, those who have rejected Jesus, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own, so that you may proclaim the virtues of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You once were not a people, but now you are God's people. You were shown no mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, to keep away from the fleshly desires that do battle against the soul and maintain good conduct among the non-Christians so that though they may now malign you as wrongdoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God when He appears. That this morning is the reading of God's Word. Now, on other occasions when I've had the opportunity of sharing in the scriptures and we have particularly focused upon, um, you know, what is the meaning of the church and what is it that God has called us to do, I've shared with you that I would want to just kind of further today, you know, to say to you, I, I have a very personal fascination with church buildings. You see, when I, when I look at the many different type of church buildings that we have in the world today, uh, many of them what we might call traditional church buildings, I, 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 I somehow believe that many of these church buildings have been built as, as an attempt to match the sentiments that Solomon expressed when he had the opportunity, given the vision that his father King David had, of building for God a beautiful place of worship. As we often describe it, to build a building to the glory of God. Now I'm sure that many of you have been in circumstances where you've been at churches where maybe when you've looked at the architecture around you, you know, sometimes you will see that there's kind of a, a, a plaque. Okay? And normally that plaque or that piece of marble, that's mostly what it will look like, you know, will have um, inscribed on it, built to the glory of God. You know, that, that's kind of part of that, that evidence as to, as to what we find there. A beautiful place, place of worship. A place of worship, a building that would not only inspire people to worship God, um, but, but maybe also more so that the very building itself might um, be an example of a sacrifice of worship to God. You see, I think in the history of Christianity, we, we see many buildings that have been built and produced that seeks to reflect that. You know, uh, I mean, church architecture normally is very different. 
You know, it is there, I believe, to inspire a sense of the majesty of God, a sense of the splendor of God, you know, through its beautifully ornate decorations. You know, I think um, some have indeed in the way in which church buildings are built have tried to inspire worship. You know, so for example, one of the characteristics of church architecture is the idea of spires. You know, these, 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 the, 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 these tall towers and spires that reach up into, into the heavens, you know, to maybe give you a sense of the fact that God is sovereign, that God is transcendent, but also as you look up those spires to draw your eyes up beyond to God. You know, but there's a part of me that sometimes asks, are we actually building through this building something that inspires worship to God, or are we just building modern versions of the Tower of Babel? You see, I think there's a sense in which the history of Christianity can be described as a history of its buildings. You see, our, our own English word church, you might not know this, is actually derived from a word that initially meant belonging to the Lord. Belonging to the Lord. And yes, I guess, you know, one could argue that the building belongs to the Lord because that's what we call it. We call it God's house. I think the earliest reference to this idea comes from actually an African theologian called Clement of Alexandria. In the second century, in the first 200 years of Christianity, Clement of Alexandria is said to have coined this term, we need to go to church. You know, and, 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 and that's still the term that we use today. But even there, Clement of Alexandria was probably talking about the New Testament reality as to what church was. It was actually a gathering of believers that took place in homes, that took place in people's houses. But a hundred or so years later, it was probably through the conversion of the Roman Emperor Constantine in about the year 312, 313 after the birth of Jesus, that Constantine started formalizing this idea of the church as being a building. Because you see, that conversion of Constantine stopped the persecution of Christians as far as the first 300 years of Christianity was concerned. And after the year 313 AD, through a particular edict that Roman Emperor Constantine um, formalized, you know, Christianity essentially became a state religion. And as a result, you know, church buildings started being um, sponsored by the state, by, by Constantine himself. That gave rise to a particular style of church building called the Basilica. And I don't know if you know it, there's actually a competition happening in the world today as to who owns the largest church. In fact, uh, the record for the largest church building used to be that of the Roman Catholics in what is called St. Peter's Basilica. So Basilica refers to a style of church building. You know, and up until a few years ago, St. Peter's Basilica was the largest. That record has now been broken in Africa, by the way, if you don't know. The largest building, church building in the world, is actually in Côte d'Ivoire. 
Yamashukra is the town where there's a basilica that was built that was visited by, by the Pope who when he saw this building happening asked the builders, couldn't you make it a little bit shorter? <laughs> In terms of height, you know, you know, compared to what happens in, at St. Peter's, you know, there's this kind of competition. But, you know, if we, if we look at numbers, you know, where the largest churches in the world are, then we have to look to Nigeria. You know, because there they have weekly attendances of over 65,000 people. You can imagine that. But, you know, it is from this early stages of Christianity, you know, with this focus on the church as a building, you know, um, following Constantine, we enter into what is called the Byzantine era of Christianity. You know, and then throughout the years, up until where we find ourselves now, you have church buildings that become um, a reflection of its environment. You know, Romanist church buildings, Gothic church buildings, Renaissance church buildings, Baroque church buildings, Rococo church buildings, neoclassical church buildings, and modern church buildings. I sometimes wonder what Jesus would say if you were to visit our buildings today. But you see, why am I sharing this with you today? I'm, I'm sharing this with you today because I want to, not just to know that I'm fascinated with church buildings, but I want you to know that I actually love the church. In fact, I can say that I love the church so much that I, in a certain sense, have dedicated my life to the church. Um, in, as far as ministry is concerned. And I'm sharing this with you today, and I want to share this passage with you today, because I'm also hoping that you too would love the church and would be committed to the church. But at the same time, I also want to say as much as what I love the church, I also hate the church. Now that might sound a bit shocking, and in a certain sense, contradictory. But I'm, I'm sure that there are those amongst you who will know that maybe all I'm doing is using the language of Scripture, you know, or language that we often use today. We call it hyperbole, <laughs> exaggerated speech, you know, in order to uh, attain a particular effect. You see, Jesus did this once. You know, if you remember what he said in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, he says, you know, in order for us to become his disciple, we must do what? We must hate our father, our mother, our children, our brother, and so on. You know, Jesus, you know. But what Jesus was doing was engaging in hyperbole. You know, to show us that if we truly want to be his follower, if we truly want to be completely committed to him, then it must be as if we are hating everything else. Another hyperbole, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into heaven. You know, it's, it's hyperbole, it's exaggerated speech. You see, what I'm trying to maybe inspire within us is what others have called a constant holy discontent to where it is we find ourselves and what it is we have committed ourselves to be part of the church. You see, our church, Pinelands Baptist Church, is actually part of a long tradition of what we call Protestant churches. 
going back to that time, just over 500 years ago, that we call the Protestant Reformation, that in a sense grew out of church leaders of that time who had a holy discontent as to what the church had become. In fact, at that stage, every resource the church would often muster, would bring together, was dedicated in order to enter into this competition of building buildings, to make them as beautiful, to make them as ornate as possible, in order to give glory to God, in order to inspire people to worship. Now, I'm not saying that they maybe I didn't accomplish that, but I'm not sure that that was necessarily the best way for them to dedicate and to pull their resources. We need to have a holy discontent as to what the church has become and maybe even to where we find ourselves right now in terms of our ideas about church. Now, I also want us to understand and appreciate that the, the, the goal of the Reformation was not to bring about division, within the church. The goal of the Reformation was to bring about a transformation, was to bring about a change, was to bring about a revival within the church. But unfortunately, the church had become too institutionalized, it would seem. And as a result, there came a division, there came a split. And so yes, the Reformation was important, But you see, the Reformation, we must understand, wasn't just supposed to be an event. It was supposed to be a movement, an ongoing desire to see and to bring about change, to bring about a revival, so that the church can continue to be formed and shaped into the image of Jesus Christ. The church is no longer a movement. It has become an institution. It has become denominational rather than being relational. It has become hypocritical because that is what people call us, don't they? You know, ah, the church, you know, they're full of hypocrites. And maybe sometimes they are true. That is true. We become hypocritical rather than becoming transformational. The church for many has become just another social club rather than a spiritual house, a spiritual hospital. And so maybe if Jesus were to visit many of the buildings that we call churches today, something tells me he would call many of these buildings what he called the temple in his day, a den of robbers rather than a house of prayer. You see, nowhere in the New Testament does the word church ever mean or refer to a building. We know that. You see, when Jesus said, I will build my church, he was not talking about literal buildings, but rather he was talking about people. He was talking about building of a community. You see, even for us within the Protestant Reformation, you know, we have to admit, yes, yes, we, 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 we have inherited buildings. And while the Reformation sought to bring about specific changes to these buildings, and we've seen that, you know, so that the way in which we structure our buildings for worship is very different to what it was. 
But you know, maybe, maybe the reformers didn't go far enough. Because just think about what happens in many of our Protestant buildings today. You know, the way in which we structure them is all about serving the purposes of a brief time of worship when we gather as a community. And so what we do is, for example, we put pews inside those buildings. And what do we do by putting pews there? We create modern idols of formal worship that entrenches us and immunizes us against what 1 Peter chapter 4 describes, the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, in that all of us needs to be part of that experience. But let us come to our text. And let me highlight these characteristics of the church that I believe is essential and is important for us to remind ourselves about. The text introduces this concept as to what the church is, even when we talk about it as a process of building. You yourselves, as living stones, are built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices. That's the verse that I read earlier and said, you know, if we understand what church is all about, that's it. That's all that we need. You know, we can pack up and we can go home. But there's sometimes a need for us to understand many of its implications. So the first characteristic we need to appreciate here as to what is an essential characteristic as to what it means to be the church is this idea that we ought to be a living community. A living community. You see, we, we can ask ourselves the question, you know, how can a dead thing live? How can a stone live? You see, what the Apostle Peter is doing here is working on this idea, you know, that we often do focus upon a place. We do fo- often focus on a, spouse, uh, on a space. We do often focus on a building as being a place of worship or being the church. But no, it is more than that. The stones have to live. And the only way stones can live is for the Spirit of God to enter into the real church. And that real church is us. So you are living stones. You see, it is this God who could bring forth water from a rock that can transform a group of people, as he did with that first group of disciples, you know, those people that were essentially fishermen amongst others. He was able to come into their space, into their lives, and to transform them to become a, an example of what it means to be a, a living community. You know, they were the 12 most unlikely people that you could bring together in order to be disciples. Jesus calls a SARS representative. You know, Matthew the tax collector. And then he also calls into discipleship the very person whose life was to kill the tax representative. You know, the zealot. You know, because one of the disciples was a zealot. You know, Jesus brings this unlikely group of people together and he forms them and he shapes them into a community. And that's what Jesus continues to do around the world. He brings people together 
from all different kinds of experiences and he draws them together as Ephesians chapter 4 reminds us into a body. That's the metaphor, that's the description used of the church there. And so Peter wants to remind us that the church is not about a building. The church is about us and who are we? We are the church. We are living stones. Which means that we ought to be characterized as a living community. The second principle, the second characteristic that he highlights in this passage is what he calls our corporate identity. You know, I mean, every business, every company needs a corporate identity. You know, to distinguish one from the other. Well, here is the corporate identity of the church. See, the passage uses four word pictures to describe the church's essential corporate identity. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's own people. Four images. See, when you read the Bible, when you read the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, you will see that every single one of these descriptions were descriptions that he used to describe the people of the Old Testament. Israel. The Jews. But now it is being used because if we read the entirety of Scripture, we need to understand that God's purpose, even in choosing the Jews, was to draw all people to Himself. And that is why the first part of this corporate identity is He says, You are a chosen race. Now, the word race here should not entrench within our minds the idea of an ethnic identity. That, that is not what what this word is all about. You know, we have taken that word to mean that. You know, we distinguish people by the color of their skin or their tribal background or whatever the case might be. You know, no, what, what Jesus is trying to do here and what God sought in order to help people to understand what it is that he was doing was always choosing a group of people to fulfill his purposes amongst other people. You see, it is a sovereign act of God to choose a people as his instrument of his blessing. But the idea of election, of being chosen, is never to the exclusion of others. That is how we have taken this doctrine and turned it around. You know, when you choose something, it means you reject something else. That is not what election means. And we need to read Romans chapter 9 through to 11 properly to understand God's purposes. But that is what God is doing. He brings people from many different backgrounds and he brings them together and he calls them my chosen race. The second part of that corporate identity, a royal priesthood. You see, God's idea was that all of us were to become priests, a kingdom of priests. That's a special honor and a function. You see, we have often relegated the idea of those who work for God as being the priests. That's what happens in traditional denominations. But that is not the same for us. You know, because the idea here is that everyone, everyone who has committed their life to Christ becomes a priest. That's what we call the priesthood of all believers. I like the way my colleague in the Ukraine describes the role and the function of the church. You know what is happening there at the moment. I, I, I don't have time to go into the horrendous details. That he shares with us as a team. 
on a daily basis. You know, the amount of WhatsApps I've received from him in the past month is more than what I've received from anyone in my life. But he calls Ukrainian Christians bridge builders. You see, but that is exactly what the word priest actually means. It means a bridge builder. And so despite the fact that they are being invaded, despite the fact that there is deep divisions growing between the evangelical church in the Ukraine and the evangelical church in Russia because of what is, being ha- of what is happening, he ends off many of his messages and saying, this message comes from the people of the bridge. But you see, he has understood what this passage is all about. That we are a royal priesthood. We are about building bridges, not just between ourselves, but more importantly, between us and God. We are a holy nation to be separate and distinct. You see, the, the, the word holy um, doesn't just speak about our ethical character and our ethical nature, but that which makes us distinct from everyone else. And I guess that is part of the challenge of Christianity, is it not? You know, the degree to which we look too much like the world. But you are called to be a holy nation. You are called to be God's own people. You know, this word over here actually means a treasured possession. I'm sure that some of your Bible translations uses that. It's this idea that God, when he looks at us as his people, says there is nothing more precious than you as people for me. You know, each of us has got a treasured possession. Some of us will say, you know, it's our spouse or our family that has our most treasured possession. Or some of us will say, well, you know, I've actually got a family heirloom. Or I've got something that is of great value. So much so that I will do everything possible to protect it. That is the word that the Bible uses here, that God uses to describe us as his church. His own people. So he's called us to be a living community that comes with a corporate identity. But we always have to be reminded that the church is the only organization, if I may use that term, (laughs) that does not exist for itself. Being the church means fulfilling our responsibility. Yes, the church is like an NGO, but it does not exist for itself. It exists for others. The church is, says Peter, a proclaiming community. What does proclaiming mean? It reminds us of our responsibility. It's a message that we have embraced. It's a message that we understand, but it's a message that we have to share. It's a message that we have to proclaim. Now, it's very easy for us to say, well, you know, but, but that's for the preachers or for those who try to preach, you know, with gruffy voices. <laughs> but that message is one that he characterizes here and says, you know what? It's about good conduct. Good conduct. Just think about that. Because it's not just the pastors or the leaders who have to be good. Every single one of us has to be good. And so he's saying here, our, the fulfilling of our responsibility is a mission of righteous living. That every single day of our lives, we have a corporate responsibility 
of fulfilling that mission, a mission of living righteously in terms of our ethics and our actions. In the past two weeks or so, I read another story of a church building that I kind of made it my ambition. You know, if ever one day I have the opportunity, because I actually like doing that. And as much as what I hate what the church has become, I still like doing that, going to visit church buildings when I'm able to. And one of those, one of the stories I read in the last two weeks is a church building I'm sure you have heard of. It's called the Crystal Cathedral. You know, a number of years ago, if you might remember, there was a television broadcast called the Hour of Power. You know, the first mega church of the first by the first mega church pastor, Robert Schuller, founded the, this church in 1955 as part of a particular denomination, the Reformed Church of America. Um, and he was inspired, you know, to do church differently. That, 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 that is what, what his goal was. You know, and so when he started church, um, one of the things that he did was, you know, was to have driving church. You know, so you could drive up into a parking lot, you know, and worship God in your car. You know, we sometimes say, come as you are. He says, come in your car, you know. So he was, he was, he was really being novel. But in 1977... He commissioned in, through this church this unique glass building. In 1977, it cost them $18 million to build this church. In fact, some of the people said that if they were to try and do that today, multiply by four to give you a sense of what the impact was in terms of, of the budget. This church could see just under 3,000 people. A colleague of mine once visited this church and said, you know, they even had the capacity, given the fact that they had started this idea of worship God in your car, you could actually literally drive into the building and worship God in your car. They even had an artificial river running through the middle of this church. But in 2010, the Crystal Cathedral filed for bankruptcy. And the question was, who was going to, who was going to buy this church? And you know, at that moment there, I paused. A church filing for bankruptcy? I think bankruptcy is often preceded by other kind of rupsy. What a waste of money! <laughs> what a waste of resources! But the building was rescued by the Catholic Church. <laughs> the Archdiocese of California bought it, and at a cost of 70 million US dollars, consecrated into what is now called Christ's Cathedral. I think there's something to be said about people worshipping in glass houses. They should be thrown with living stones. See, what is church all about? Church is a community, a movement of transformation, a movement of reformation. And that is why I love the church. But at the same time, I hate it because of what it has become. 
I pray that we might continue to love the church. But we need to make sure that we hate it for what it has become and for what it could become. Please pray with me. And so gracious Father, you who have given birth through your son Jesus to us to be your church, to be your community, a community of faith, a living community, a holy community, and a doing community. We pray that you might never look at us and say, I love my church, but I hate your church. Be gracious to us, dear Father, as we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.